We have studied the first 28 verses, and uh, we've seen that uh, Mark begins the gospel with Jesus Christ uh, being foretold by the last of the Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist. And then Jesus is baptized by him, and the Spirit sends him out into the desert, into the wilderness, where he faces animals and angels, just like the Christians in Rome were facing wild animals and God's help through the angels. So uh, Mark is showing us clearly that Jesus is the one who will show us believers and disciples of Jesus how to live. And then we saw in verses 14 through 20 that Jesus calls the disciples, and the only appropriate response is one that's immediate and total. And then he shows and demonstrates his rule over the underworld as he drives out an evil spirit in the synagogue in Capernaum, takes total charge of him, rules over the evil spirits. Now, as we turn to verse 29, we'll see that Jesus rules over uh, even our diseases. He heals us. Even the worst diseases that we can think of, uh, that last stanza that we sang, uh, you know, behold, ye blind, your Savior coming, leap ye lame for joy. Uh, the, the Lord uh, rules over all. And you can, if you've got your study Bible, you look on page 1603 and you look at a series of miracles that Jesus performs. Look at all those healing miracles. And uh, most of them Mark records. There are 35 miracles listed there on page 1603 that Jesus performed uh, that, that are recorded in the Gospels. And of course, John, the Gospel writer, says there's so many things to tell about Jesus. The whole world could be filled with books and still wouldn't contain it all. So they had to select. But they selected 35 of these miracles. And about half of those, a little over half of those, Mark himself has in his account. But notice how many of them are healing. And then some of them are other miracles showing his power over nature. And then, of course, even raising the dead. And uh, Mark includes one of those with Jairus' daughter. So Jesus is being revealed to us for who he is. He's the Lord over the underworld. He's the Lord of the world. He's the Lord over nature. And we're going to see the Lord even over our diseases. So let's look at verses 29 through 45 in this crucial first chapter of Mark. And uh, we'll get about really three stories here lumped into one. But they all tie together as we shall see. Verse 29. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed, The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. 
So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees. If you are willing, you can make me clean. Filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately, the leprosy left him and he was cured. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. Okay, we've seen the last time that the teaching of Jesus is extraordinarily important for us. We need to be taught by Jesus. We need to be engaged in his teaching ministry, whether in private or in public, whether at home or in uh, the outside world. And today we want to look at Jesus healing us. The first thing I'd like for us to notice in this first story, verses 29 through 34, is that Jesus heals us that we may serve. He heals us that we may serve. Now, first of all, notice that physical healing is essential to Christian ministry. Uh, and this is very important for all of us to grasp. And, and I have to say, as an evangelical Protestant, it's very important for me to grasp. Because my tradition uh, over the past uh, 100 years has bifurcated the physical expression of the gospel in healing and the verbal expression of the gospel in evangelism or preaching and teaching. And the two are to be brought together. We should not put us under what God has joined together. And I want you to notice in Jesus' ministry how they go together. His ministry has some constituent elements. And in order to get a nice summary statement of it, turn to Matthew chapter 4. And you'll notice that at the beginning of his ministry, we are given a summary statement of what this ministry is. In Matthew 4, look at verse 23 at the bottom of page 1548. Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Okay? There's Matthew's summary statement before Jesus begins his ministry. And you'll notice in the Sermon on the Mount, we're starting off with, with teaching, aren't we? And that's exactly what he says here. He went throughout Galilee teaching. He went throughout Galilee preaching. And then he went throughout Galilee healing. You get the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7. And then chapters 8 and 9, you come across his healing ministry. So he teaches and then he heals. The two things go together. And turn over to Matthew chapter 9 at the end of that first section. And you get this same sort of summary again in Matthew 9.35. It's like bookends around the teaching and preaching ministries of chapters 5 through 9. Chapter 9, verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. And in some places, the summary will be that he also cast out demons, which is what we get here. It's a form of healing. So the Christian ministry 
includes healing, physical healing. Now, I have put here for you on your handouts a couple of excerpts. The first one is a chapter entitled Christian Social Responsibility from it's chapter five of the Lausanne Covenant, which was a covenant drafted by evangelicals. I believe it was 1976, wasn't it? Where evangelicals, Protestants from around the world came together and and declared our own inadequacies in these things and tried to straighten the ship a little bit. If you'll look at the fifth line down, it says here, here, too, we express penitence both for our neglect and for having sometimes regarded evangelism and social uh, concern as mutually exclusive. Although reconciliation with other people is not reconciliation with God, nor is social action evangelism, nor is political liberation salvation. Nevertheless, we affirm that evangelism and socio-political involvement are both part of our Christian duty, for both are necessary expressions of our doctrines of God and man, our love for our neighbor and our obedience to Jesus Christ. So the those who gathered in this assembly said we we realize that social action is not evangelism, but they both are expressions of the gospel and they're both necessary. If you read on uh, to uh, the fourth line from the bottom, it says we should not be afraid to denounce evil and injustice wherever they exist. OK, so this now this is uh, 30 years ago when uh, for those of you who, who are Protestants, Protestant world was saying, you know, we missed it. I don't think the Catholics had the same problem that we did. But the Protestants tended to separate the two. And so here was a major international attempt to bring the two back together. Now, more recently, I printed off here for you a statement. I think it was last year that the National Association of Evangelicals printed for the health of the nation an evangelical call to civic responsibility. It's probably a 12 page document, but here's an excerpt. That second line says the prophetic teaching insists on both a fair legal system, which does not favor either the rich or the poor, and a fair economic system, which does not tolerate perpetual poverty. Though the Bible does not call for economic equality, it condemns gross disparities in opportunity and outcome that cause suffering and perpetuate poverty. And it calls us to work toward equality of opportunities. Skip down a couple of lines. Christians reach out to help others in various ways through personal charity, effective faith based ministries and other non-governmental associations. And by advocating for effective government programs and structural changes. Skip down a couple more lines. Health care, nutrition, education are important ingredients in helping people transcend the stigma and agony of poverty and re-enter community. We urge Christians who work in the political realm to shape wise laws pertaining to the creation of wealth, wages, education, taxation, immigration, health care, and social welfare that will protect those trapped in poverty and empower the poor to improve their circumstances. And then skip down another line, American foreign policy and trade policies often have an impact on the poor. We should try to persuade our leaders to change patterns of trade that harm the poor and to make the reduction of global poverty a central concern of American foreign policy. Now, this is the National Association of Evangelicals. And no, uh, normally, when you think of the evangelicals, you think of evangelism, which is the proclamation 
the proclamation of the good news of the gospel. And we'll get to that in a moment. But what you can see here is constituent to the gospel ministry is the gospel of healing and caring for people's physical concerns. So if we are concerned about the good news of the kingdom, we will be concerned about the physical welfare of people around us. And we will pull together the ministry of physical compassion with the ministry of proclaiming the gospel of good news for eternal life. They go together. Now, if you think about going to an area of our city or an area of our world that's that's, uh, under-resourced, it goes something like this. You first go and show up and build relationships and listen and learn. And sometimes that can take years depending upon how different the culture is from your own or how different the people are from you or how strained the relationship is between you and them. You simply go and learn and listen and you care about everything in their lives just like you would your own family. When your kids don't have clothes to wear, you don't say, you know what you need to do? Believe the gospel. You work hard and you get them some clothes. If they don't have adequate food, you don't tell them, you know what, you need, just need to know a little bit more about, about, about Jesus. No, you work hard and you put food on the table because you love them. That's the key. You love them and you love everything about them. And you care about all their needs. And that's exactly the way that we go to the under-resourced world is that we love them. And we want to treat them like we would our family. If they don't have food and they don't have clothing and they don't have housing, that's our concern. The fact is, you look around the world and 23% of this world does not have access to potable water. 23% of the world. And you have about... Uh, 20% of the world that has absolutely no access to any medical care except for a witch doctor. And if you look on a global map that analyzes the health concerns and the physical concerns of this world and superimpose which parts of the, which regions of the world have been effectively evangelized, you'll find out a 97% overlap between the least evangelized people of the world and those who are in the most physical need. Why? Because the proclamation of the gospel and the caring of people has always gone together. And all you need to do is look at it empirically, scientifically, and you'll see the results. That where God's people have gone, people find relief and wholeness and health. And if you look at it in our own city, we just find all kinds of problems. And certainly you can find them in terms of health needs. In fact, I was looking at a website in UT Health Science Center just the other day, and the infant mortality rate here is very, very high. And it's three times higher among African-Americans than it is whites in Tennessee. If you look at, at the statistics, Tennessee is the 48th state in terms of heart disease. We're the 42nd state in terms of cancer mortality rates. And if you look there, you'll find, once again, in both these cases, the African-American rates of cancer mortality, and the African-American rates of heart disease are about one and a half times those of white Tennesseans. So obviously there's not only a great concern about health care in our own state, and especially in given neighborhoods, but there's even a disparity among different types of people that ought to arouse those who are following Jesus Christ 
who is concerned about justice. So we go into an area, we listen and learn and serve. We have a concern for their hearts that they know the Lord and have eternal life. We go and develop systems for caring for their needs. We seek to establish healthy Christian communities where they live, namely churches. And then we get involved in social justice, which restructures society so that there is an equal distribution of opportunity and a significant redistribution of resources, not necessarily by law, but by the will of the people in caring for those in that neighborhood. It's a long, holistic process. So I guess the question is, so what? And I'd like to suggest a couple of things. One is we must concern ourselves with the total welfare of our neighbors. Christ starts where they are. He goes to the synagogue, he goes to the streets, and he addresses their their needs. Obviously, their biggest need is to get home safely to heaven. Meanwhile, he loves them. He loves all of them. He loves them and he wants to provide for them. And he sees these incredibly huge needs. And he certainly saw the need of this man, uh, this man's uh, mother-in-law, Simon's mother-in-law, who had a fever. And he healed her. And we must concern ourselves with the total welfare of our neighbors. In the United States, we have 40 million people who are uninsured. And in Memphis, Tennessee, we probably have 150,000 people who have no medical insurance. I tell you what, I don't know what I would have done without medical insurance a couple of times in my life. And probably you're thinking the same thing. It's, it's very important to have medical insurance. There are 150,000 people here who don't have it. And we have people in our, in our city who have no medical care unless they're at the point of death and they go to the emergency room and wait in line. They have no preventive health care. There are all kinds of huge problems in our city that Christian people, disciples of Jesus, will be concerned about. So what do we do? Well, the second thing we have to think about is we must do something about it. And I know that some of you here are involved in these things. Some of you are physicians. Some of you are concerned uh, and involved in Christian medical ministries. Uh, and we have a couple of really good ones here in our own city. One, Christ Medical Clinic. How many of you here are involved in Christ Medical Clinic? Anybody here? Okay. But uh, the Christ Medical Clinic deals with people who are the least resourced in our community, have no medical care, and they have several locations. They're seeking to get medical care out into the community. You need to make a note of that, Christ Medical Clinic. And if you'd like to get involved with them or support them in some way, you probably need to know what they're doing. They're one of the more strategic thinkers about the least resourced, and they really are doing a great job. They have some very fine staff. And then, of course, there's the Church Health Center, which, whose, whose main ministry is to reach the working poor who are uninsured especially. And they do a marvelous job. And some of you are involved with Church Health Center. But uh, I noticed some years ago there's a particular opportunity with the Church Health Center called the Memphis Plan. How many of you are familiar with the Memphis Plan? Good. It's, uh, it's designed for uninsured people who work at least 20 hours a week and who make no more than two times the poverty level based on their family size. Let me say that again. It's for uninsured people in Tennessee 
who work at least 20 hours a week and who make no more than twice the poverty level. I believe for a single person that would be like $380 a week or something. And it's an employer-sponsored program. An employer who has no more than 200 employees. And for the grand sum of $10 a month, you can provide medical care for your employees. You may have someone who works in your home 20 hours a week. And you could get, get them medical coverage. It's, it's made up of over 100 physicians in this city who, under Church Health Center's uh, leadership, have collected together and are offering to uh, give this systematic coverage to people who come into the plan. It's available. And folks like uh, those sitting in this room who some of you have less than 200 employees and some of them are not covered, need to think seriously about the Memphis plan. Here is something you can do through your business that says, I care about the medical concerns of people in our community. There are other things that we need to do as well, but here are just a couple of them. The Christ Medical Clinic or Church Health Center. But wherever we go, individually, we're to be concerned just as Jesus is about physical health. Now, notice, secondly, B, physical healing is sometimes miraculous and sometimes natural, but it is always God's gift. You'll notice in this case, in verse 31, he simply went to her and took her hand and helped her up and the fever left her. So in this case, it was miraculous. And as we mentioned, Jesus has 35 miracles listed in the scriptures. You go to the apostles and over there. Uh, 30 years of ministry. This is three years of ministry for Jesus. You get 35 miracles recorded. The apostles, over roughly 35 years of ministry, we have about 10 miracles recorded. And uh, I have very few in my file on me. Um, So whether it's natural or whether it's miraculous, it's always God's gift to heal us. And some of the modern medicines we have, I'm I'm just amazed. Uh, at how God in his providence has provided for our healing, uh, even in our own generation. It really is marvelous what he has done and is doing. But it is to be expressed to him as thanksgiving for the gift of healing. You know, Presbyterians uh, or rather Pentecostals lay hands on people and heal them. Presbyterians build hospitals. Uh, And so maybe, you know, the charismatics specialize in one type of healing. And Baptists and Methodists, you notice our two big hospitals here, Baptists and Methodists, uh, we build hospitals. And the history of a hospital is that wealthy people didn't go to hospitals. They had the physicians come to them. Hospitals were for the poor. So do you notice it was churches that built the hospitals. It was God's people that cared for the poor. Now hospitals were for the wealthy people. The poor can hardly get in. And we have to have special ministries, special ministries like Christ Medical Clinic or Church Health Center to go after the poor because the hospitals have now become corporate institutions that are driven often by corporate concerns. But in the early days of hospitaling, we understood this is an expression of the gospel. Good news for the poor. We're going to take care of you. We care, we care about your whole person. And I just want to say to all of us, this is not directed just to medical personnel. We're all part of this. The insurance system, all the consumers, of which I am one, 
It's all built around who has the power and who has the money. This is what's controlling things. It often does. It almost always does. Until there's a new mentality, a Christian, a Christ disciple mentality that says we've got to care for the poor. That's the mission of God's people. So whether it's miraculous or natural, it is always God's gift. And thirdly, notice that physical healing leads to service. Would you notice, this is so interesting, uh, in verse 31, the fever left her and she began to wait on them. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus heals the woman. Jesus heals the poor. Jesus heals the wealthy. They arise and they serve him. And that's the purpose of your healing. And if you've received a healing, and I know some of you have, you've received a healing from the Lord, the purpose is to rise up and serve Him and give Him honor, give Him thanksgiving for healing you. And that's the very reason, of course, that's such a beautiful demonstration of His love. Now notice, uh, just on the side here for a moment, in verses 32 through 34, that it was after sunset that the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. Why do you think it was after sunset? Have you ever thought about that? Because the Sabbath was from Friday afternoon to Saturday sunset. They're bringing the sick and demon-possessed to Jesus after sunset because they don't want to violate the rules of the church, the synagogue, to carry people on the Sabbath. Is this not a statement about us in the church? All of our rules and regulations, we'll, we'll heal you on any day except Sunday. <laughs> it's, it's, it really is ridiculous. So after sunset, after the Sabbath is over, the day of finding rest and peace with God, we'll go get healed by Jesus. And so often it's the very church that just regulates itself right out of business. Uh, because, once again, we're concerned about ourselves instead of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And look who comes, everybody. Everybody. And when we concern ourselves with the real needs of real people, they'll come. It's when we stay on a narrow political agenda or even, shall I say, a narrow theological agenda. And that's the agenda of our church. We're going to push this and we're going to emphasize this. And we stop really listening to people and seeing where they're hurting and how they need to be touched by the Savior. That people are not interested. And that's the reason they're not interested. Because of lack of relevance. Notice that Jesus, if he was anything in their eyes, he was relevant. So they come to him and he healed many of them who had serious diseases. And then he drove out many demons. But then look at this at the end of verse 34, this very mysterious statement. But he would not let the demons speak. And you, and you think that he would say they didn't, he didn't let them speak because they said dirty words. <laughs> no, <laughs> uh, he didn't let them speak because they knew who he was. You combine that with his statement to the leper down below where he tells him not to tell anyone in verse 44, but just go show themselves to the priest. He's telling the demons not to reveal who he is, and he's telling the healed leper not to tell who he is. This is called the Messianic secret, and it has uh, engaged the minds of New Testament scholars for years and years and years. Why is it that Mark is revealing that Jesus said on a number of occasions don't tell anybody who I am. Well, uh, we're going to get into this later, and I promise to address it later and tell you what I think is the real root of it. But there's some obvious things. Uh, obviously, the demons had no interest in exalting Jesus. They just had interest in creating chaos. And uh, if they could pronounce him as son of the most high and 
get people all riled up about a political uh, maneuver here with some new hopeful Messiah who's going to come throw out the Romans, then that would be a great thing to do. Stir up all this political energy, all this military energy, get people all riled up about their patriotism and nationalism and forget the real point that Jesus came for. That would be helpful. And Jesus doesn't want that. And, of course, you notice at the end of the text, the leper didn't do what he said. He told everybody about Jesus, and Jesus could no longer go into the villages but had to preach out in lonely places because the villages were too crowded. So there, there are some practical reasons, but I think there are even some deeper reasons we'll get to later. But you have it very early on, this messianic secret being shown to us, even in the midst of his healing. And there is a mystery or a secret to who Christ is. We'll get to that later. Now, secondly, in looking at verses 35 and 39, we're going to see something that's, that is mysterious and even deeper than his healing of people physically. And you'll notice that Jesus heals us by prayer and proclamation. So when we come to verses 35 through 39, we're going to see that there's something about the ministry of Jesus that is, that is uh, deep and profound. His outward ministry of caring to people in their needs is undergirded and fueled and empowered by something that is very, very deep and profound. That's what we want to touch into. Because if you're going to really receive healing by him, this is the ministry you need from him. You need for him to pray for you and you need for him to be your teacher. And if you're going to be engaged in his ministry, whether you're a physician or a lawyer or a businessman or a teacher, no matter what you are, in, uh, behind all of your healing ministry and caring for people in the ministry of compassion and all of your social action and social justice, there must be a life of prayer and the proclamation of the gospel. This is the heart of it, as we shall see. So look here and you'll see the first thing in verses 35 through seven, uh, 37 is that prayer is our greatest Supply line. Jesus was a person of prayer. And, of course, this has been said throughout the ages by many, many people. If you take the great Baptist missionary, William Carey, really the father of the modern missionary movement, um, who went to India, of course, here's what Carey said. Prayer, secret, fervent, believing prayer, lies at the root of all personal godliness. For the Presbyterians, if you think about John Calvin, the great reformer, he said prayer is the chief exercise of faith. If you think about your faith in Jesus Christ, the chief exercise of that faith, says Calvin, is prayer. The Anglican uh, J.C. Uh, Ryle said on one occasion, if you tell me the content of a man's prayer, I'll tell you the state of his soul. So Ryle was saying that prayer is the best expression of who we are. D.L. Moody, the great evangelist, used to say that those who have left the deepest impression on this sin-cursed earth had been men and women of prayer. Here is an international evangelist. And he's saying the people who leave the deepest impression are not those who evangelize the millions. It's those who know how to pray. And uh, the really outstanding author on prayer, some of you have read, no doubt, is E.M. Bounds, written many books on prayer. Let me just make, give you one quote from E.M. Bounds. What the church needs today, he said, is not more machinery or better, not new organizations or more novel methods, but people whom the Holy Ghost can use, people of prayer, people mighty in prayer. 
when the church has been at her strongest, when the Christian lives have been at their best, we've been in prayer. And the reason you can tell very quickly, you could do a very quick diagnosis of the North American church and say she's not under revival. She's not in a period of strength because all you have to do is go to her prayer meetings and you find very few people there. And when you listen to them pray, they pray mostly about the things that concern their economic welfare and their physical welfare. There's no deep sense about the advancement of the kingdom in their prayer life. As J.C. Ryle said, show me the content of a man's prayer and I'll show you the state of his soul. So, number one, you find very few people in the church gathering for prayer. And number two, when you overhear their prayers, you may as well be standing outside the hospital waiting room taking names. That seems to be the extent of the concerns. And we've already seen Jesus is concerned about the hospital emergency room. We've already seen that he cares about our physical needs, but he cares about more. He cares about our souls and about eternal life. And he himself is a man of prayer. Notice, number one, we, like him, must set aside quality time. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus went out to pray. This was after a long Sabbath of healing people. He was exhausted. Those of you who teach Sunday school uh, or those of you who preach, if you preach several times a day, you know how your legs feel. You know how your voice feels. You know how your head feels after you've been talking all day. Exhausted. Jesus was exhausted dealing with demons, sicknesses, people clamoring for him and preaching all day. And what does he do? Very early in the morning, he goes out to pray. Why? Because that was the only time he could find to pray and have time alone with the Lord. Well, I guess if Jesus needed support in prayer, what do you think about us slobs? <laughs> you know, if the perfect son of God bolstered his own ministry by talking with the father and seeking his aid and asking for the fullness of the spirit, what do you think about us? We definitely need to do it. We need to set aside quality time. Secondly, we need to find a place. Jesus went off to a solitary place. This is the same word that's used in verse 12 for the desert. Jesus went out and found a desert. And you'll find it also in verse 45. It says that he stayed outside in lonely places. Same word. So Jesus became familiar with wilderness, became familiar with lonely places. Some of his ministry was accomplished there. And the most important ministry was his ministry of prayer. We betray our own misunderstanding of the role in prayer in our mission when we make statements like this. Let's get together and pray for the ministry. The fact is, prayer is the ministry. It's the most important part of the ministry. It's not supplemental. It's fundamental to your Christian ministry. It's fundamental to mine. It's fundamental to ours and all the churches that we represent. We've got to be sure to put back into the church the number one thing that Christ put there, and that was the gift of prayer. And you'll notice right from the beginning, the, the apostles and, their, uh, and the other disciples were together in prayer. If you look at the content of their prayer, you can go to John 17 and see how Jesus prayed. You can look at Ephesians 3 and Philippians 1 and other places and find how the apostle Paul prayed and what he prayed for. And I know the Lord slowed him down, as we've said before, and put him in prison um, several times so that he would write those letters for us called the New Testament and also so that he would pray for the church. Paul had plenty of time to pray, and believe me, he used it when he was in prison. And sometimes, you know, you're stopped at a stoplight, and all you can do is be frustrated. Or somebody, you're in a, you're in a, 
you're selling and you're having to wait on your customer who's making you cool your heels and all you can do is be frustrated. You ever thought about praying? There's an opportunity. Let's be men of prayer because obviously with Jesus, it is absolutely fundamental to his ministry. And I just want to encourage you, every single one of you, between now and Christmas Day, I believe that's about three months, and then a little less than three months. Between now and Christmas Day, could you find one day in a lonely place to do nothing but seek the Lord with His take your Bible and go in prayer? And if you have to, then take a little journal that you can write in. That's all you take. And go out to the wilderness for an entire day. I'd like to challenge every single man in this room, especially those of you who have just thought, you know, I think every one of my days are already booked. Especially those of you who have thought that. Especially those of you who are very busy. And if you're very busy, you probably take great pride in the fact that you're very busy. Because that means you're important. Because you're whacked out and that's the way you think. You're a workaholic. That's the way you associate importance is how busy you are. Especially those of you. Would you please notice how busy Jesus is? And would you please notice the priority of a busy man? Martin Luther said he prayed two hours every day except when he was really busy and it went to three or four hours on those days. Because the busier you are, the more likely you are to do something really stupid because you haven't sought the Lord's favor. Some of you have told me some of the most stupid things you've done have been because you never even asked the Lord, never spent time seeking His face. You say, what do I do? I don't hear voices from heaven. You've got the Bible. There's a voice from heaven. And you ask Him for wisdom. We're told in the Scriptures we don't have wisdom because we don't even ask. And I know men, like men in this room, who go and make massive decisions. They're very important and affect other people. And never utter one word of supplication or intercession before the Lord and ask Him to help them. It's just thoughtlessness on our part. Look, I've done it. Believe me, I've done it in the church, made decisions in the church. I'm embarrassed to say it without consulting the Lord as I ought. And so I know you do it too. And here we're being shown by Mark what the Christian ministry is all about. It is fundamentally a ministry that grows out of a conversation with the Father. That's fundamentally what a Christian life is. It's a life being lived out of a conversation with the Father. So notice that we must find quality time and a quality place. And I'm going to ask every one of you, sometime between now and Christmas, you schedule it. You can go out here to St. Columba, a wonderful Episcopal retreat right on the edge of Cordova. And you can go out there and go and have perfect silence. You'll be silent. Everybody around you will be silent for 24 hours or for a whole day, you know, 12 hours if you want. You can go out there. You can borrow somebody's place out in Arkansas or something. Go out and be by yourself. No TV, no cell phone, no radio. Prayer and the Bible and your journal. And ask the Lord to guide you. That's what Jesus did regularly. Then you'll also notice, uh, thirdly, that we must resist good things to do the best thing. If you're going to try to do what I'm talking about, either finding one day between now and Christmas or even more wisely, finding time every day where you have at least 10 minutes to talk to the Lord and have a conversation with Him, you're going to be in a battle. That's the last thing the devil wants you to do. And you're going to get a battle. And it's going to be good things. 
The devil is probably not going to inspire a lot of bad things. Those are too obvious. Oh, no, I'm going to pray. I'm going to do that. But he'll bring good things. That's exactly what happens to Jesus. Here are the good things. It's called fellow disciples. (laughs) Simon and his companions, verse 36, went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed. And the language here reveals that they were a little testy, a little bit irritated with Jesus. Everybody's looking for you. Where have you been? Don't you know we got a we got a show to sustain here? <laughs> All these people bringing their their unhealthy people. They need to be cared for. And you, the great physician, are out in the woods somewhere. They're a little bit irritated. Everybody's looking for you. It's a good thing to go heal the people. It's a good thing to give them education. It's a good thing to give them food and clothing and housing. It's a good thing. It'll be the good thing. That the Lord will use to tempt you. You know, Oscar Wilde said, I can resist anything except temptation. <laughs> I can resist anything except temptation. And you'll be able to resist anything except the good things. Unless you are forewarned that when you seek to root your ministry, your life in prayer, you're going to be resisted by good things and good people. Really. I have so many good people in my life. It's unbelievable. And they have all kinds of great suggestions. I like these people and I like their suggestions. And I could fill 36 hours a day on good suggestions from good people. But the best one is I should be a man of prayer. And in order to do the best one, I actually have to say no to some really great ideas from some really great people. Otherwise, I never get the best thing done. How about you? I suspect it's the same way. Jesus had the same problem. And he, in some ways, didn't answer them. But he went on to the next issue. He says, okay, come along. Let's go on to the next villages to proclaim gospel. That is why I have come. So he talks about the next major point of deep inner healing, prayer and proclamation. The proclamation of the word is our greatest weapon. Folks, you know I'm all for miracles. I've seen some things happen that I believe were miraculous. I can't prove it scientifically, but I think they were. But I've certainly seen the Lord answer prayers many, many times. With the laying on of hands and anointing of oil and with praying for people, I've seen Him answer prayers. I can't even enumerate all the prayers that I have seen answered by the Lord. I believe in prayer and I believe in miracles. And I believe in healing and caring for people. But I think what Jesus is showing us here is the greatest thing that we do. The most important is the proclamation of the good news of the kingdom. And there's a sense, and Calvin put it this way, he said miracles are appendages to the word. Maybe that's a little uh, overstated. But there's something important here. The word and the ministry of compassion go together. But the cutting edge of it is the proclamation. Why? Because if someone hears the proclamation of the kingdom, through which proclamation the kingdom actually does come in our midst. So the proclamation, as we saw before, actually brings the experience of the kingdom in our midst. They then are introduced to the Savior who cares about their temporal needs, but also cares about their eternal needs and who will heal them. Every single one of them, miraculously, 
everyone without exception, on the day of his return. So do I believe in miracles? You better believe I believe in miracles, and I'm going to see them performed consistently and completely at the return of Jesus Christ. If we said that when Jesus was here, we had 35 miracles in three years recorded, and with the apostles over 35 years, we had 10 miracles and none that I can probably brag about. We can see that when Jesus was here, we had consistent miracles. When Jesus spoke, it came to be. And it was a demonstration of the power of the kingdom in Jesus Christ. When is this going to happen again? Over that day again? I'm telling you, it's coming. It's coming when the king returns. When he is here presently, he will speak and healing will come into being again. So do I believe in healing? Physical miracles? Absolutely. Some of them trickling down now. But they'll come in a mighty flood when Jesus comes and everyone will be healed who is his disciple. So, if in the proclamation of the kingdom, someone here today becomes a disciple, you're healed. You know, the charismatics will often say healing's in the atonement. And non-charismatics will often resist and say, no, no, it's not in the atonement. Your, your soul is saved by the atonement of Christ. Well, I want to say healing is in the atonement. Sometimes now, but for sure later. And the atonement provides for all of our healing one day. And whatever healing you get now is temporary. But the healing that Jesus offers by the proclamation is permanent and it is eternal. And so Jesus is saying, look, I didn't come primarily to heal people temporarily. That's not my main ministry. I care about them so much. Of course, I want them to be clothed and fed. Of course, I want them to be healed. Of course, I'm going to touch them. But what I'm really concerned about is their eternal welfare so that they will always be clothed, always be fed, always be healed. And the two go together. But Jesus is showing the primary reason that he came uh, in verses 38 and 39 is to proclaim the kingdom. And we see, number one, the proclamation goes everywhere. Goes everywhere. He says in verse 38, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I've come. Let's go everywhere. That's the reason the proclamation of the gospel must go everywhere. If you care about the poor, you've got to be sure they get the gospel. We've already seen the poorest people in the world, the poorest people in the world are the ones who are least evangelized. They are the poorest physically now, temporally, and they're also the poorest eternally. And they're in the same places in the world. They're difficult to get to. They require brave and bold missionaries to go there. And the new mission in our own country is in the urban areas. We need brave and bold and loving people to go. And both things happen. You will elevate their temporal conditions, and you'll also certainly elevate their eternal prospects. And also the proclamation is powerful because you see in verse 39 that as he traveled throughout Galilee preaching in their synagogues, he also drove out demons. The proclamation of the kingdom brings out the demons, as we saw last time, because the proclamation is a proclamation of truth. Satan is the father of lies. He hates the truth. But even more so, the proclamation of the kingdom is a proclamation of rule and reign by Jesus Christ, taking over the territory that the devil so much wants to reign and rule over. This is a takeover. And so when the proclamation is made, you can expect all kinds of evil to come out, sometimes very explicit. And the bolder the church gets, the bolder Christian men get, in insisting on the proclamation of the kingdom and living it out, you can expect a wave of evil to come at you because they can sense the takeover, the takeover of righteousness, the takeover of love, 
the takeover of the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, there's going to be a massive response. But then you notice that that proclamation itself has the very power to subdue all hell's power and put them under the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what's been happening for 2,000 years. Well, lastly, we've got about six minutes. Let's look at verses 40 through 45, and we see that Jesus heals us for a reason, that we may belong to him. This is one of the most touching stories in the scriptures. Here's a man with leprosy who came to him in verse 40 and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And we see, first of all, that our disease makes us unclean. And leprosy was a classic case of it because it was a skin disease. We don't know if it's exactly what we call leprosy, but it was akin to it. And you can find from Leviticus, when people had skin diseases, they were set apart from the people. They were ritually unclean. They could not come into the temple. And in this case, they were quarantined and put outside the camp, so to speak. So they didn't have social relations. No one would touch them. Not just because you might get the skin disease, but because it made you ritually unclean to touch them. And here comes a poor man who's never had a human touch for years and years. And he pleads with Jesus, which I know you're, you're powerful enough to do it. If you're willing, you can do it. Would you please make me clean? And we have a disease that's called sin that makes us unclean and separates us from the temple itself so that we too cannot enter the temple of the Lord in an unclean state. And so whatever physical maladies and diseases we have, they're just almost sacramental expressions of the fact that our souls are unclean because of sin. And we too cry out. We're asking for compassion because we know that our disease makes us unclean. And look at verse 41a how moved and compassionate Jesus was. It says in verse 41, filled with compassion. Jesus has a deep heart for those who are diseased, and especially the deepest disease, which separates us from the glories of heaven itself. And the heart of Jesus, or in, in Hebrew language, the guts of Jesus, his bowels are, uh, are deeply uh, stirred up. That, that's what it meant to have affection. It came from here instead of what we say is here. So he was moved with compassion. Toward this man. And you'll notice that he touches him. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. Now, this was unheard of, especially for a rabbi who knew the laws of ritual cleanness. To touch a leper was to disqualify yourself from temple worship and to become unclean yourself. No rabbi had ever done that. And Jesus actually puts a hand on the man. I'm telling you, that's a powerful thing. I remember my, my wife, who was going to a number of doctors about. 30 years ago, uh, specialist doctors for a lung disease that she struggles with. And she went, we were in Boston, so we went to the Leahy Clinic and Mass General, went all over the place and got all these tests done. After it was all said and done and she'd gotten all her diagnosis, she went to see old Dr. John. He was an elder in our Presbyterian church. And he was retired but still practicing medicine. And, uh, you know, maybe half time or something. So she went to see Dr. John. Dr. John was just sitting there in a stool, on a stool. He had another little stool there. And he said, now, Allison, honey, come on over here and just sit right down. He just put her, his hand on his shoulder and said, let me pray for you. And Allison just sobbed. He touched her. He prayed for her. He was concerned for her. And I'm telling you, Jesus is the perfect physician. Scientifically, he knows all the stuff. He's the miracle worker. He can do it. He's got the stuff. But he has a heart. And he connected with this man and absolutely radically changed his life. He said, you're important. You're included. Your, your disease is not going to come between you and me. I'm going to take care of that. It's exactly what he says to every man here. Whatever disease you've got, it's not going to come between us. 
And he puts his hand on you right now. And he goes on to heal us. Our healing cleanses us. He says to him, be clean. He didn't say be healed. He said, be clean. That is, let everything be removed between us. You see the deepest healing that Jesus is about? Whatever physical healing we see in our world through medical practice, whatever miracles that we observe through our own Christian experience, whatever engagements we have in this city to try to elevate the health, especially of African Americans and others who are marginalized historically, whatever we do, we're basically saying, be clean. Come and connect with us. Come and be brother and sister. Come and know the Lord. Come and enjoy the bounty of His kingdom. That's what you're saying. And that's what Jesus said to this man. And then in verses 43 and 44, you see that He says, don't go just shouting out to everybody. Just go right to the priest. Go and show them. And the reason is, be a testimony. You show the priest that you're really healed. So give your testimony. You've really been healed. And then lastly, you see that our testimony changes the world. Even though he was told not to, he couldn't help but tell everybody else. So we have a clear testimony that we're healed, we're made clean, we're brought into his presence, we're, we belong. And that's the whole point of everything that he's doing in the world is that we belong. He made us and we can be restored to fellowship with him. And that's what the ministry of Jesus is all about. So, brothers, as we go our way, let's remember this, that the physical and temporal expressions of the gospel are very important. They were important to Jesus Christ, and therefore they must be important to us. And connected with that is the proclamation of a kingdom that provides final, complete, eternal healing that is the most important of them all. So that we keep these two things together, both demonstrating the gospel and proclaiming the gospel, bringing them to the two of them together so that the whole world may know who he is and love him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the powerful healing and cleansing ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ to bring us near to you. Thank you for this high priestly work which bridges the gap that sin has created. And we pray as we go our way, God, that you will root us deeply in the ministry of prayer and the word. That as we go our way serving other people, that this ministry is always integrated as it is in the heart of Jesus, the temporal with the eternal, so that one day, O oh Lord, all of it will read down to your honor and glory and praise. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.